Okay, let's go ahead and grab a seat, if you would. Turn your Bibles open to John chapter 14. You can follow along with the handout with the teaching notes. You can look at your Bible as well. Like everyone to grab a seat, if you would. I'm going to cover a, a subject that I've covered a little bit over the last number of months, but so it will be a way of review for some of you, but truths that are really necessary to repeat over and over again. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Father, I ask you that by the Holy Spirit, you would reveal the Lord Jesus to us more and more in these next few moments. Holy Spirit, we recognize your presence. We recognize you as the teacher. You can give us living understanding that's beyond our natural ability to even comprehend. And so we're hungry for that, we're desperate for that. And we acknowledge you, Holy Spirit, in that role in our lives. And we thank you, we love your leadership, we love your ministry. And we bless you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Tonight I want to talk about uh, Jesus' teaching, his call in the upper room to overcome four really powerful, prominent, and even dangerous emotions that if we get trapped in them. And Jesus identifies these emotions in John chapter 13 to 17 in a very specific way, though he doesn't use these terms but he describes their impact upon the lives of his disciples. I want to talk about overcoming fear or anxiety, despair. Put whatever word you want in there. But fear, anxiety, despair, shame, the bitterness of betrayal, bitterness, but I'm going to link it to the word betrayal, and grief. And Jesus addresses these for emotions and gives us a way to over, be an overcomer in the hour of history when these emotions will be prominent in the, in the human family across the earth. I'm going to start by sharing an open vision that I had, and I've shared this a number of times. Some of you have heard it several times already. It was in, on March 3rd, 2021. And I've had only, this is only the second open vision I've had in 50 years of walking with the Lord. And what I mean by an open vision is I'm awake and I see like a movie screen on the wall. It happened again a first time in 2008 and the second time here in March 3rd, 2001. It's very startling. I was in my office at, at IHOP and I was praying for the thing the Lord had challenged us as a spiritual family from Revelation chapter 3 to overcome the Laodicean spirit, that spirit of dullness, that spirit of compromise, that spiritual boredom that so easily sets into the lives of even very sincere believers. And that was a passage the Lord had highlighted in our community in March and April over and over again. We, I think we spent six weeks, every meeting, talking about this and and believing the Lord that 
we could buy gold and that we would, ob- we would respond to the invitation that he said in Revelation 3.20. He said, open the door of your heart. Come and dine with me. Come and dine with me and, and buy gold in my presence. So I was praying just in that same spirit. I was saying, Lord, as a spiritual family, me individual, of course, but as a spiritual family together, we want to open the door of our heart. I ask you for grace. Help us in our weakness. Because in our flesh, we're weak and broken, and we need your Holy Spirit help that we could open the door of our heart more widely to you, according to Revelation 3.20. And as, as you read Revelation 3.20, Jesus' word to the Laodicean church, it's just two verses later, there's a chapter divide, but remove the chapter divide, chapter four, John says, and I see a door opened in heaven. So in 3.20, Jesus says, open the door of your heart, then two verses, then after that, there's a door in heaven opened, and I was talking to the Lord about that, And suddenly on the wall, right in front of me, my eyes are wide open, I see a door appear. I mean, it's very kind of unsettling and it's it's perplexing. Like, you know, for a minute you go, it looks like there's a door on the wall. You know, it takes a minute to calibrate to what's happening. And it opens towards me and I see this room filled with golden light. It's just this glorious golden light. And I'm looking, the light doesn't shine on me. I, w- I wish it would have, but it didn't. And the Lord speaks to me. I just see this, and it, it comes very clear to me. As my people open the door of their heart to me, I will open the door of my glory to them. Again, Revelation 3.20, skip two verses. Then chapter 4, verse 1, he opens the door of heaven to John. He sees the throne of God. And in that encounter, it's not a really long encounter, but a very powerful one, the Lord uh, clarifies to me that he, he's highlighting John chapter 13 to 17. And that the way that we open the door of our heart as we start engaging with him and the opening the door of his glory isn't just a, you know, a, a, a vision of his beauty that we see as grandeur, but we enter into that relationship with him described in John 13 to 17. Now, most of you will recognize that passage. It's called the Upper Room Discourse, five chapters, or some people call it his farewell message. It's at the Last Supper. He washes their feet in John 13 and says some very, very important things to them and then gives the teaching in John 14, 15, 16, and then the prayer in John 17. So it's five chapters. And I call these five chapters the greatest teaching given by the greatest teacher in human history. This is the deepest truth and teaching that Jesus offered, these five chapters. And many believers, I know many, many believers that would say John 13 to 17 has to be one of their favorite passages. But I think in reality, though it is popularly a favorite passage, in reality, it's probably not read and engaged with in a sustained way by almost anybody. The greatest teaching by the greatest teacher equipping the heart of the church, particularly the end-time church, although for 2,000 years it's certainly appropriate, I mean uh, uh, applicable, and yet it's been 
commonly overlooked and neglected. There's, there's not been a sustained engagement with the Lord in these five chapters. And I, I'm not saying that's a big heavy rebuke or anything like that. I don't know that the Lord has pressed the body of Christ, but I want to prophesy to you, I believe the Lord is going to cause John 13 to 17 to be in the main conversation of the body of Christ more and more as we approach the coming of the Lord. The heart of the overcomer in the book of Revelation, I believe, is made clear in these five chapters. And so the Lord has stirred my heart that I've, I'm uh, in, in the process of giving, I don't know, on Friday nights here, 50, maybe 70 messages on Friday nights for a year or two or whatever, just taking our time line by line, phrase by phrase, working through these verses. I have much to learn in these verses. And I'm, and I'm taking these, I don't know how many, at least 50, maybe, maybe 100, I don't know. I just wanna camp here for a year or two or three, probably two or three years on Friday nights because we do Friday nights for 22 years of IHOP. And it's the time we just come and mostly we talk about intimacy with God on Friday nights and, and our students and interns are here. And, and so I'm really wanting to engage in this and I'm doing it a lot just out of sanctified selfishness for my own benefit. But I'm doing it to, to be a blessing to others too. But I am so desperate to not just do a five-part series on these five chapters and move on. I want to camp out on phrase after phrase after phrase. And I'm saying in a believing but desperate, hungry way, Holy Spirit, I need you to teach me more than ever right now these five chapters. Would you teach me these five chapters? We're here in chapter 14, verse 1 doing a 15-part series just on chapter 14, then a 15-part series on chapter 15, then a 15-part series on chapter 16, then on 17, and then go from there and, and do some more as the Lord leads. So what I'm really wanting to do is stir your holy imagination and hunger to say, you know what? The greatest teaching by the greatest teacher and I don't know it very well, or it seems kind of cryptic when I read it, I think I'm going to camp out here for a while. And I'm wanting to stir that resolve and that hunger and that holy curiosity in your heart to say, where would my heart go if I anchored into this and really settled into this for a couple years? It's possible you'd never, ever move on from it. Well, we're going to begin here in verse 1, a very well-known passage but I believe a passage is not understood so well nor engaged in very often. But it's, it's very well known. It's, you know, over the years, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s when posters and bumper stickers were more popular than they are now in the social media digital age, there would be so many posters. Let not your heart be troubled and have a sunset and, you know, this, the calm ocean waters and oh, And it's kind of, you know, on Hallmark cards and greeting cards, and let not your heart be troubled. And so it became easy for this passage to be reduced to poetry on a plaque or a poster. But it's one of the most essential commandments that Jesus begins his teaching in John 14 with this commandment. It's essential to obey this commandment. I mean, on a regular daily basis, or as close to daily as we can for the rest of our life. This isn't a one-time kind of, 
oh, that's neat. No, the Lord said, no, I need you to engage your heart intentionally day by day to obey this commandment. He says, let not your heart be troubled. The command is to not allow trouble to dominate our emotions. He says, I don't want you to allow trouble to dominate. Then he goes on and he says, believe in me, believe in God, believe also in me. Then he says in verse 27, I'll give you supernatural peace. I will give you my peace. Then he repeats it again in verse 27. But don't let trouble dominate your heart. Don't let it be afraid. That's the same thing. He, repeats, he says it in verse 1, again in verse 27. And the fact that he repeats this, that's, that's rare in these five chapters, that he repeats something like word for word. That's like note to self. Pay attention to this. It's very, very important. Now the point he's making is there are human, very important human dynamics involved in us obeying this command. He isn't saying, I will cause your heart not to be troubled. He's saying, you interact with me in a way. You must do your part. And as you do your part of lining up with my word, when negative emotions come to your mind and there's that storm of thoughts of your mind is just running real fast in negative ways and your emotions are, your mind and your emotions, he's saying, instead of letting it run its course, I want you to say no. No, now you don't have the power to stop it if he doesn't help, but he won't help to the same degree unless you engage with him according to what he's saying. He says, bring my truths. And I'm gonna highlight eight truths that are in this passage here that we must interact with. And as we interact with these eight truths, and there's more truths than these eight, but I'm just kind of giving an introduction. Then the Lord is saying, I will cause peace to grow in your heart and mind progressively but don't expect the peace if you don't do your part and interact by refusing to let trouble dominate your mind and your emotions. I mean, it hits us, and we have the Word of God, and we have to bring the Word of God, we have to bring our mind and our heart by the words of our mouth back to the Lord, and it's, Lord, you said this. Thank you for what you said. Show me more, Lord. The Lord says, keep doing that. You do your part, and I'll do my part by releasing supernatural peace in your heart. And beloved, this is essential for the end-time church. Let's look at paragraph B. In John uh, 13 to 17, he tells us how to engage our troubled hearts to overcome four of the most painful, but also the most dangerous emotions and mindsets, because emotions and mindset, they overlap, but they're not the same thing. These are four of the most dangerous and painful emotions to be entrapped in. It's very common for the human uh, experience to be trapped in one or more of those four emotions or mindsets. Fear, anxiety from the despair of trouble rising in the culture, Trouble rising from persecution. Just the despair or the fear of the anxiety that comes from that. Very, very normal to humans. Shame from personal failure. Bitterness that comes from being betrayed by loved ones, either family or friends. Betrayal isn't a stranger attacking you with false accusations. Betrayal is a trusted relationship that turns on you. And then the 
emotion that he starts with is the grief of the death of a loved one, and the grief, the loved one he's talking about right that moment is himself. I am going to die tomorrow, actually, and you're gonna experience the grief of the sudden loss, the unexpected loss of me, your dearly beloved, but it's not gonna end there. Over the decades to follow, almost everyone, if not everyone, of the apostles were martyred, and many were martyred. Not most, but many. And so it's not just the death of Jesus, but it would be the death of others. How are they going to overcome this trouble? And what he gives into the early church is a template. It's more than a template, but it's the way forward for how the end of the age church will face greater pressures and yet overcome. I believe a billion so harvest is coming in, and I believe that hundreds of millions of believers are actually going to overcome, and they're gonna walk with a vibrant spirituality. They're gonna thrive in their spiritual life in the midst of negative all around them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in these five chapters, he gives us line upon line insight into God's heart, what God's like, and into God's promises. And he's saying, when I'm, Jesus is all in essence saying, when I'm gonna reveal my heart and the Father's heart, I don't want you just to go, wow, cool. I want you to say, thank you. Lord, show me more about what's in your heart. Talk to me about what I tell you that's in my heart. Don't just nod your head, engage in conversation with me. And when I give you a promise, and he gives us five chapters, many promises, and it's not only these five chapters, but these five chapters, Jesus the shepherd strategically brought together a number of promises. Interact with me, don't just say, wow, but I, like, I have this simple little phrase I've said for, for years, when I see a promise or a revelation of God's heart, this little simple phrase, I say, thank you, show me more. And as simple as that is, it starts me in a conversation with God about God. And if you start the conversation with God, it may last three to five seconds, it may go 20 or 30 seconds, it may go four or five minutes, every now and then it goes longer, but when you take the word, bring it back to God in conversation, that's when change happens in our inner man. When the word of God, the written word, becomes our conversation with the living word. That's when our heart, little by little, begins to enter into more and more peace. So in John 13 to 17, this is just a phrase that I love to say, and you can say it a half a dozen ways, that we have been called, invited by God, to enter into the family dynamics of the Godhead. Like, what? The way the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interact. The family dynamics of those three together. One God and three persons. Three distinct persons, but one God. The great mystery and the glory of the Trinity, of the Godhead. The way they interact, Jesus is saying in John 14 and 15, or I mean throughout this, I am calling, we are calling you to enter into the conversation with us with the Trinity, enter into these family dynamics. Now, not all of them. Some of them are unique to the three of them, the way they interact. But many things that Jesus is setting forth, he's saying the redeemed are gonna interact with the Father, Son, and Spirit the way we interact with each other. Beloved, this is glorious beyond measure. Because when 
what Jesus is setting forth, he's not revealing how he as God interacted with the Father as God, and Jesus is fully God, the uncreated God. But he's showing himself as a model of a man filled with the Spirit interacting with God. And he's saying the way I interact with God as a man filled with the Spirit is the way that you will interact with God as people walking in the Spirit. Now obviously Jesus did it to a measure beyond anyone, but it is the model and the source that he's calling us into. And this is how the heart gets liberated from being entrenched in trouble. We talk about engaging in the Trinitarian conversation, the way they talk. I mean, they have things that are unique to them, for sure. But the way they talk that Jesus reveals here, he's saying, talk to us in the light of these promises and these revelations of how our heart and personality, what they're like. Look at Roman numeral two. Roman numeral two. So in order... To understand John 13 to 17, these five chapters, the upper room, he's in the upper room at the Last Supper. This is on a Thursday night. You have to go back two days earlier to Tuesday because two days earlier on Tuesday, he spoke the prophetic message of Matthew 24 and 25. That's Tuesday. Now here on Thursday, that was his last teaching to them that's recorded. He's actually continuing in the same conversation. So if you want to understand John 13 to 17, you want to start in Matthew 24 and 25. Because Jesus is, in essence, saying, I'm going to take up where we left off in the conversation. Because as you'll see here in a moment, in Matthew 24 and 25 on Tuesday, he calls them in Matthew 24, verse 6. He goes, don't let your heart be troubled. And he lays out many of these pressures that uh, will trouble them. And then here on Thursday, two days later, he begins with, don't let your heart be troubled. And they could have said, oh, that's what you said Tuesday. He goes, yeah, I'm in the same conversation, actually. Now I'm telling you how to interact with me. On Tuesday, I described the trouble. On Thursday, I'm giving you the way to interact so that you're not overcome by the trouble. The trouble will attack you. The trouble will sting your heart. The, you'll wrestle with the trouble, but it doesn't have to overcome us to where we just camp out in that troubled mind and troubled heart. The wrestle will still be there. Now, I'm not telling people that they'll just do a few things and all of a sudden they'll never, ever feel the trouble again. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Let's read Matthew 24. Right here in verse 2. Jesus makes the most radical statement that we could lose sight of really easy. He says, not one stone of the temple shall be left upon the other. He's in essence saying in our language, he's saying Jerusalem is gonna be destroyed and the most important building in the nation is going to be destroyed. It would be like if an angel appeared on the platform and said, after Washington, D.C. is decimated, Here's what I want you to know. I mean, when he said Jerusalem destroyed the temple, the apostles went, what? I mean, the social, political, economic implications of that statement, it would be like if an angel appeared on the platform and said, Washington, D.C., New York City, after totally destroyed and brought to nothing, here's what I want you to know. We would be so startled by that. If, I mean, if an angel really appeared, this is the Son of God saying it's gonna happen in Jerusalem. This is a crisis of a level you and I can't even relate to. 
And because we're 2,000 years later, we tend to miss that point. That was huge. I don't think they got over verse 2. He goes, verse 6, and I'm skipping a lot. And because my point isn't to give a verse-by-verse teaching on what he said in Matthew 24 and 25, but it's to tie in the the, uh, overview of the crisis with the response in chapter 13 to 17 that will help us overcome it because whatever happened in the first century, the trouble and the glory will be much more intense in the final, in the generation the Lord returns. So whatever he told them then, he was telling us now, because Matthew 24 and 25 was actually, it was for them for sure and in their day, but it's ultimately about the generation he returns. He goes, see to it, verse six, you're not troubled. Again, that's Tuesday. Now we're here on Thursday in John 14. Don't be troubled. Same conversation. Nation will rise against nation. That's ethnos. uh, Racial conflict. There will be racial conflict all over the earth. Racial conflict not only is just tragic in itself, it's ominous for the people around because everyone is a little bit in a position of vulnerability when there's significant racial conflict in a city or nation. I mean, everybody's just like on guard. When he says nation against nation, that's not just a couple wars over across the sea. That is racial conflict in the cities of the earth. Like, That's troubling. Famine, pestilence, earthquakes. Well, we know a little bit about pestilence. He goes, it's gonna go beyond that, verse nine. It's gonna be martyrdom. They're gonna kill you. Later on Thursday, he says, they're going to kill me, but he's already told them they're going to kill them. And they're, I think they're just kind of deer in the headlights. I really do, going like, uh, wow, well, we love you. You're amazing. You're powerful. We're good. No, you don't quite understand what I'm telling you right now. That's on Tuesday. And on Thursday, they still didn't quite get it. Now he tells him in verse 10, one of the most painful realities, that the most common response is bitterness. He goes, betrayal. Again, betrayal's not a stranger accusing you falsely. Betrayal is a close friend, loved one who turns against you. And that happened all through the early church. He goes, verse 11, many false prophets. There'll be false narratives. There'll be fake news. Not just on on the left, you know, because some on the right say, there's fake news, there's fake news. Right, left, there's fake news all around. Distorted narratives about what's happening in the crisis, in the culture. All kinds of distorted narratives, tricking and deceiving and confusing people by what's really happening. Well, look at Luke 21, and you can read these in depth. I'm just really pointing to these so that you go in deeper on these subjects, on these passages in your own time. Luke 21, now remember, Luke 21 is the same message as Matthew 24. It's the same afternoon, Luke adds a few points, Matthew doesn't, and Matthew adds a few points that Luke doesn't. But you read them together to get the, the fuller message. He goes in verse 12, Matthew didn't say they're gonna lay hands on you. That means beatings. When they're laying hands, they're not praying for you to ask for you know, the blessing of God on you. The laying hands is really, that's not good. And they will persecute you. They'll put you in prison. He's adding a few dimensions. Luke is, is adding a few dimensions to what Jesus said that Matthew doesn't say all of them, but together we get the bigger message. Verse 16 is, is, is just unbelievably troubling. You will be betrayed by parents because of me. Early church, but clearly in the end time church. Like, ooh. 
betrayed by brother, relative, friends. Like, I mean, that verse 16 is like, ooh, I just wish that verse wasn't there. Really? I mean, Jesus is 100% accurate in his prophecies. He goes, there'll be Jerusalem. It's not just they're going to tear the temple down. Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by armies and destroyed. That happened in 70 AD, and Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies again when we're close to the, to the return of the Lord. The last final three and a half years of this age, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14, many passages, Jerusalem will again be surrounded by armies. Some folks want to say, well, it happened in 70 AD, so that one, take that one off the list. No, read the end time, pro I mean, the prophets of the Old Testament. It will happen right before the appearing of the Messiah comes to transition the earth to the age to come. The end time jert, the generation the Lord returns, will have greater trouble but greater glory than the early church. So whatever happened, I'm, I'm highlighting the negative because Jesus is gonna tell them, John chapter 13 to 17, how to respond so that trouble does not dominate them. And that's the point I'm wanting you not to grasp it all in one session, but to go, boy, this is an important conversation. I really wanna enter into this in a greater way. Paragraph B, I'm gonna kind of jump ahead and give a very short takeaway. What did Jesus is really saying? What he's really saying by let not your heart be troubled, he's saying bring your mind into agreement with my truths and my promises. Say what I say. Don't just let trouble run its course in your heart. Now, Paul he says the same thing, but in different terminology. And I'm gonna use Paul's language in Philippians 4. He says, verse six, be anxious for nothing. That's the same thing. Let not your heart be troubled. It's the same thing. Whether it's anxiety, despair, fear, it's, it's the same. He goes, but in everything, by prayer with thanksgiving. In everything, by prayer with thanksgiving, let, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God will supernaturally guard your heart, that's your emotions, the stormy emotions, but more than that, it will guard your mind too. Because our mind can race and we're like, I just can't stop what I'm thinking. And then our emotions, they overlap, but they're two distinct parts of the human makeup. Paul said there is a supernatural peace that will guard the heart of the emotions. I mean, that sounds like, I want my name on this verse. This is what we want. But here's the phrase, in everything by prayer with thanksgiving. Now we can read this verse and think of we're only asking God for protection or money or guidance and that's involved. But it's far bigger than prayer requests for provision. And because some people read this verse and they reduce it to prayer requests for, uh, for provision or protection, direction. What, Jesus, what Paul's saying, he goes, by prayer, by engaging your heart in conversation with God. So prayer is not just a, 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 a request for a need to be met. Prayer is an interaction, entering into conversation with God's heart, but with a spirit of thanksgiving for what God promises. So I'm not, I'm not just saying, Lord, I need the money, I need protection. I'm saying, Lord, I'm gonna talk to you with a spirit of thanksgiving. Whatever you say about your heart, I'm gonna say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, it's true. It doesn't feel true. It doesn't look true. Your word says it's true. My heart is racing. But thank you. Show me more. And if you start, and, and, and again, this is so simplistic, with that simple little beginning phrase, I've used it for many, many years, often it will grow to a larger conversation that may go a minute or two. 
You know, pray in the Spirit a little bit. It may go a little bit longer than that. It may go a little bit longer than that. A lot of times it doesn't. But I like to stop almost every time. It's exaggerated to say every time, so I don't want to exaggerate. But I like to stop and say, thank you. Like when Jesus says, I love you like the Father loves me. I like to say, thank you. Show me more. Show me more. The Holy Spirit, I mean, literally could say, I was just waiting for you to ask. So when I see the phrase prayer with thanksgiving, I put in the, the takeaway is conversation with God with a spirit of saying thank you for that truth and that promise. Show me more. Let's top a, look at top of page two. I'm going to give you seven reasons why the apostles were troubled. And I'm only putting seven because I ran out of space on the page. <laughs> there could be about 10 or 15. This isn't a comprehensive teaching. This is to jumpstart you into the study and the research. And I just read it in Matthew 24 and 25. I just gave you a bunch of it. There's more than seven. But seven's a cool number, and I'm out of space on the page. Anyway. Well, these seven reasons that I'm putting on the paper here, again, just to begin the conversation and the searching out, the first three that I'm going to highlight, the reasons they're troubled, Jesus says in John 13. It's, he didn't, it's not what he said in, on Tuesday. It's what he said while they had the Last Supper. He washed their feet, and he told them three things that troubled them. And then the next four on this, this list of seven, I'm going back to Tuesday and drawing from Tuesday, but it could have been 10 or 12. It's more than three or four. I mean, it's more than seven, but so you understand that. It's important that we understand the end-time church will be troubled by these seven, yay, 15 things when you really do the whole passage. So just a few moments ago, before John 14, 1, before he said, let not your heart be troubled, here's what he said. I'm going to die and you can't come with me right now. Number one. Number two, he said, we're going to be betrayed by somebody on the team. And Judas's betrayal was not just a betrayal against Jesus. It was a betrayal of the entire team. And it says that, G and I got the verses there, Jesus was troubled by the fact he was going to die, and he was troubled. It usually were troubled by the fact Judas betrayed him. This cut Jesus' heart. But trouble didn't dominate Jesus, but he did experience it. He's looking at them. He says, the tr I'm troubled that I'm going to die, and you're going to face the trouble of me dying and the trouble of some of you dying you're going to face in your relationships with one another, and you're going to face the trouble, the betrayal of Judas, but here's Thursday night. Remember Tuesday? You're going to be betrayed by some of your parents and your family members too. It's not just Judas. What are you going to do when bitterness rises in your, rises in your heart? The most common I mean, the most natural response to bitterness, I mean, to betrayal is bitterness. Like, how dare them? I opened my heart and I gave them, my, and this is how they answered. I mean, it is, I think it's probably one of the most painful realities. But then the third thing he says, the verse before John 14.1, we're on 14.1, let not your heart be troubled. He looked to Peter. He said, you are going to stumble and betray me tonight. The spiritual failure that Peter would experience that night. And then about an hour or two later, he tells the rest of them, you're all going to stumble tonight. So the grief of Jesus dying, the bitterness of being betrayed by Judas, and the shame of their, one of their greatest spiritual failures was going to happen that night. Within 24 hours, those three things would be right in front of them. I mean, which is worse, grief, bitterness, or shame? 
I mean, you think, oh, man, I don't want to pick either one, any of those. And then two days earlier, he threw in the trouble of persecution that would come to them personally, but also the troubling of the chaos in the culture. And, you know, there's many, I said there's seven, there's many, many categories of that chaos in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Okay, let's look at these seven ever so quickly because, again, I'm just jump-starting you, kind of getting you in the conversation so you can do Matthew 24 and 25, and you can put John 13 to 17, see the one conversation, and go, thank you for this pastoral insight to be overcomers in the end-time church. Paragraph B, very quick. The death of a beloved leader. The grief that comes from the sudden, unexpected death of a loved one. Now, it's not, doesn't just, it doesn't just involve martyrdom or killed by enemies. There's sudden deaths that happen in the family of God, and there's many different sources. I'm, I don't want to go through a list of that. And it's troubling what happens. We have grief. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, we grieve, but not as those that have no hope. We still grieve. But grieving and being overcome with grief as a, for a sustained period of time are two different things. We grieve, but there is supernatural peace if we interact with the Lord in the Lord's timing. And so that's, that's paragraph, I mean, that's trouble number one. And then you, you got the passage right there. He says, I'm, where I'm going, you cannot follow. What he's saying, he makes it real clear to them a, mo a moment later, I'm going to die. You can't follow me. I'm going to the Father in death. And they're thinking he might go on a ministry trip. They go, oh, let us go with you. Why can't we go on the trip with you? We always go on with you. Well, will you come back real quick? He goes, I'll come back, but it's not like you're thinking. I am really going to shift the way that we relate to each other. You're going to begin to relate to me in a different way because you can see me and touch me and hug me, but from today on, you're going to have to believe what I tell you without seeing me with your eyes. They don't get that message yet. They're, they're, they're just still, they put it together later. Then he tells Peter, he says, you're going to deny me tonight. This is the verse right before John 14, 1. Then he goes, let not your heart be troubled. He's looking right at Peter. And Peter says, no worries. I'm not going to be troubled because I'm not going to betray you. So I don't even, I'm not even worried about this. Wrong answer, Peter. Paragraph C is trouble number two, personal failure, and the shame that comes with that when we really love Jesus. I mean, if we don't really love him, we oh, well, we messed up so what? We love him, we go, oh, ouch. And the enemy wants to accuse, condemn. He wants to magnify that to where we give up and give in. And we're just overcome with shame and condemnation. The Lord says, no, I don't, I don't want that answer. That's not the response I want. I do want you to be sorrowful and repent. Then I have in paragraph C in Matthew 26, this is a couple hours later. He tells Peter that you're going to deny me when the rooster crows. He tells Peter that twice a couple hours apart. Because the first time, Peter's going, not going to happen. The second time, Peter says, Jesus, let me, I, I want to be straight with you. I have confidence in my commitment to you. And Jesus could have said, you need to have more confidence in my commitment to you, Peter. Because we're going to shift this. Because you're not going to be spiritually safe if you have more confidence in your commitment to me than in my commitment to you. And he says, but I'm, I'm going to be there to help you, Peter. Now, it's not just Peter's example of shame. When you read the end time passages, Daniel 8, verse 23, 
is Gabriel appears to Daniel. Gabriel, we're talking about Gabriel, right? Appears to Daniel in Daniel 8, 23, and he says, in the end times, sin and sinners will reach the fullest expression of sin in human history. There will be more darkness, more demonic activity and perversion on the earth in the, in the years leading up to the coming of the Lord, but there'll be more godliness and victory and operation of the John 17 family dynamic too. They're both gonna be operating at the same time in those final years, I mean, coming to fullness. But in, in, in Daniel 8, 23, Gabriel says, you're gonna have, uh, there's gonna be sin is gonna reach its fullness. Many believers are not braced for where this thing is going. I mean, I look at pornography right now, which is an incredible problem on the body of Christ globally, not just in the West, body of Christ globally. Beloved, pornography, I'm, I'm gonna say this, this, is a little crass to say it this way. The development of pornography is just barely starting. Where uh, pornography is going with artificial intelligence, with state-of-the-art robotics, with virtual reality, augmented reality, is going to a whole nother level that we can't even harm with holograms and, and robotics with, with uh, robots with texture of human skin on them. Where, where pornography will be 10 and 20 and 30 years, we can't fathom. This is the easiest hour in history from now to the end to get free from it. This is not an hour to dabble with those kinds of things. Darkness is gonna go to a whole nother level and the shame of failure is gonna be not just Peter, he just was just a glimpse, is gonna be a real issue and Jesus is saying, I wanna make a way where this trouble does not dominate you because you can't grow in love for me when you're wallowing under accusation, shame, and condemnation. You're, you'll run from me, not to me. Trouble number three, betrayal. I already mentioned that, that Judas's betrayal was not just against Jesus, against the whole team. Their entire team was under much more pressure and difficulty because of Judas's betrayal, not just by Jesus dying, but their lives after that were as well. Well, but on Tuesday, I already said it, in Luke 21, verse 16, he goes, your parents are gonna betray you. Not, not all of your parents, but some of you. Don't be confused. This thing has got a spiritual energy in it of darkness standing for the gospel to come against you. And he goes on, he goes, brother against brother, child will raise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Like, beloved, that's serious betrayal. Like, what? And I could break these down and give quite a bit more on each one of these, and I'm sure that you could as well. Trouble number four, crisis in the culture. Wars, ethnic conflict, pestilence, earthquakes, false narratives that create all kinds of deceiving perspectives, confusion in the culture at many levels. Paragraph F, trouble five, persecution. He told him on Tuesday, he goes, they're gonna actually kill you. They're not just gonna kill me, they're gonna kill you too. He goes, they're not just gonna kill you, they're gonna put some of you in prison. And, and some of you in prison not be killed, some be killed but not in prison, some be beaten but not killed. It's all kinds of combinations. I don't believe the majority are going to be martyred. I believe it could be hundreds of millions. I don't know that it will, but I believe there'll be many more hundreds of millions that won't be martyred. But the, the, the martyrdom will be prominent enough 
Because I believe there'll be a billion or two, a billion believers plus another billion. I mean, I don't know. You know, there'll be a billion or two plus people loving Jesus in the earth. There could be a couple hundred million that are caught up in this. I don't know the number, but it will be enough to where it will come to every single individual to decide what they would do if they were faced for it. The entire body of Christ is gonna come face to face with it to decide, am I in or am I out? And this could actually be one of the elements that purify the end time church. But don't have the eyes. Some people read that, they think that out of, you know, two billion believers, 1.5 billion will be martyred. I, I don't think that's true. That's, that's my opinion, I don't know. Nobody knows the number, but if a couple hundred million, I mean, the other 1.5 billion would be going, uh, wait a second, wait a second. Am I really up for this? It will change our conversation with God. It will change our conversation with one another. It will change our prayer life. It will change what we preach in sermons. It will change what we talk about with our family gathers. I mean, persecution will shift the conversation like the power of God will too. It will shift the conversation in a glorious way. It's all gonna be come together. Paragraph G, again, uh, trouble six. I mean, uh, the sixth trouble that Jerusalem is gonna be destroyed. I mean, the destruction of their nations, what he's saying. Again, the angel appears, Washington, D.C., and New York are gonna be destroyed. I just made that up, that's not a prophecy. I mean, you know, if you're in England, the angel, London will be decimated. I mean, it's massive what it's, what Jesus is far greater than an angel. My point is, today we wouldn't catch that reading that fast, how dramatic of a statement that was. But then there's trouble number seven. I believe is really a troublesome one. It's the delay of God's promises. Meaning the 12 apostles were very confident Jesus was the Messiah. And from the Old Testament, the majority of the Old Testament, references to the Messiah had him as the victorious reigning king, not as a suffering service servant. The suffering servant is there, but Israel didn't catch it. So they're thinking, you're here. You are the son of David. You told us just the other day in Matthew 19, we're gonna sit on thrones of glory with you, ruling Israel. We're gonna be political leaders. I mean, this is awesome. Our group's gonna be in charge. And Jesus goes, yes, you will be in charge in the millennial kingdom. Yes, <laughs> you will be in charge, but not like you think and not in the timing you think. So Jesus dies and they're going, and they're scattered. They're denying Jesus. They're stumbling. They have strife. Their strife emerges among the apostolic uh, uh, family in many places across the, you know, in the early church. And they're going, what? This reigning with you on thrones of glory? Now what? And Jesus says, yeah, my time, my way, but not the way you understand right now. The delay of promises. I've seen more on-fire believers. I've been a pastor 45 years, a little over that, I've seen more on-fire believers, five and 10 years in the Lord. I mean, prayer meetings day after day are real regular and witnessing, believing God, sacrificially giving their money. And then 10 years after that, 10 years of dedication or whatever the number is, I'm just kind of pulling a number out of the air. The promises didn't come like they thought. Some of the healings didn't happen amongst and their family, some of the money breakthroughs, some of the power promises that they imagined, they had prophetic words and dreams, and it's 10 years after we've been dedicated 10 years, 10 more years, and I've seen many of them draw back and just say, you know what, I don't know anymore. I don't. There is something deadly that happens in the human soul with delay. And the Lord's saying, don't do that. 
When that delay comes and you're in the rigors of waiting and it's not like you think, say what I say. Say it back to me and say, thank you, show me more. Put my words in your mouth, not those other words. Talk to me with thanksgiving. Talk to me with a thank you, God, your word is true. Thank you, God, your promises are right. Prayer with thanksgiving. Top of page three. Now I'm gonna give you eight important truths and again, we can put 15 or 20, but we ran out of paper, and eight's enough, okay? And, and, but again, I want you to see John 13 to 17 as gold mine. When I had that open vision, the Lord says, you open the door of your heart to me, I will open the door of my glory to you. And I will, in Revelation 3, he says, you open the door of your heart, I will feed you at my table. And in John 13, he fed them the Last Supper at their table. Then John 14, 15, 16, he fed them spiritually at his table. He fed them physically and spiritually. And I'm saying, Lord, I want you to feed me. Feed me these truths. And he says, okay. So I'll just give these kind of real fast, kind of rapid fire. And again, in my little world, I plan to spend, you know, 50 to 100 sessions on these passages. So I'm not in a hurry to get through it. I just want to camp out go through it slow and maybe finish it and then do it all over again. You know, I mean, this is so important. We don't want to move on past this, these chapters. We want to get anchored in them. Not that you have to stop what you're doing and make this your number one thing, but it needs to be on your spiritual to-do list. I've got to get around to, to really locking into John 13 to 17. I really do. It's incumbent upon my spiritual safety and well-being to, to anchor my life in those truths. Top of page three. Well, we'll start off. He says, uh, we'll read it again. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And he says, my Father's house are many mansions. I'm gonna come again and receive you to myself. So that's just kind of a quick uh, beginning. What he's saying to them, he goes, I want you to believe in me, and I said, paragraph A, by agreeing with my promises. But get that in your mouth. Say it to me. Don't just go, hmm, yeah, and underline it. Say it with your mouth. Enter into conversation with me about it. Agree with my promises. Trust my leadership. When the betrayal comes, the death of the loved one, or your own imprisonment, or the setback, or the delay of promises, trust me. I am more committed to you than you are to you. Trust my leadership. It doesn't look good. Trust my leadership. And then engage your heart with me. Talk to me enter into that family dynamics of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Enter into the conversation with us. We want you talking to us about the things we talk about to you. Enter into that conversation with us. Paragraph B, notice Jesus doesn't say, let not your heart be troubled because all the difficulty, you will escape it. He didn't say that. And a lot of folks preach the gospel, let not your heart be troubled because no trouble will come near you. It's not what Jesus said on Tuesday. He said, trouble's coming really close to you. Nor did he say, if you have enough faith, you will escape all trouble. He didn't say that either. He said, trust in the truths I'm gonna lay out. And I'm laying out eight of those truths right here. Agree and engage with me on these eight truths plus the other eight or 10 that are in this passage. Paragraph C, I'm kind of repeating what I already said in, in Philippians 4 when I said, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in prayer or in conversation with the spirit of thanksgiving. I'm gonna quote uh, uh, Paul here again. 
He says, it's, it's really the same truth, but I just want to give you a few more verses. They're very common verses. He goes, be transformed. He's talking about your emotions. Your emotions are transformed when you bring your mind in agreement with the word. You can't change your, your heart, your emotions, but you can change your mind. You change your mind, God will change your emotions. You can't grit your teeth and have joy bubble up. Joy, joy, happy, 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 happy. You, it doesn't work that way. You can say what God, you can resist the mind agreeing with darkness, which is our natural thing to do. Agree with the word, and then our emotions change. Sometimes real quick, and sometimes progressively. And sometimes they change for a little while, then we go back to the negative. And the Lord says, you just, you renew your mind. You agree with me. Your emotions and then your character will change. You'll be transformed in time if you do that. John says the same thing in another way. This is some years later, after the upper room, towards the end of his life. He goes, let me give you the principle of what I was trying to say in John 13 to 17. Behold, the quality of love the Father has for you. When it says behold, what manner of love, behold means to engage with it. Behold means to meditate on it. Behold means to interact with it. It doesn't mean just like, cool, that's good. No, to behold it is a locked-in engagement with that truth. The manner of love the Father, or I like to put the phrase, the quality of love the Father has for you. Make that the thing that you put into your conversation with God. And he talks about how that hope will change you. I am certain that when John wrote that in 1 John 3, he was thinking of the upper room discourse, John 13 to 17. I have no doubt in my mind. He goes, you gotta behold those truths. Not only those truths. I mean, we wanna believe the whole Bible. But I, I mean, that John 13 to 17, I, in my opinion, is the holy of holies of the whole Bible. I mean, nothing is deeper than that, those passages. Okay, truth number one. Now, I want you to pay attention to truth number one. And again, we're going to do this pretty rapid fire. And so truth number one is we're going to have belief in the truth about Jesus, his person, his promises, his leadership. In other words, engaging with Jesus and trusting him is the primary kingdom foundation. I mean, that is absolutely ground zero primary foundational truth is not just reading it and serving him, engaging with him and trusting his leadership. Because what happens in our life looks opposite of leadership that has love in it on various occasions. And we go, no, the circumstances are really tough, but I am not challenging your leadership is bad. Your leadership is excellent. That's my confession. That is my testimony that you are good and your leadership is excellent. And so what I want you to follow this. He says, let not your heart be troubled. He says, you believe in God. So I'm going to add the word, you do believe in the God of Israel. He's not challenging there. He goes, you do believe in God. That's a fact. Now I want you to believe in me. That's a command. You go like, what? Like, what's going on? It, this is not a reference to believe in Jesus to be born again. They're already in the faith here. He told them a, a, a moment later, he goes, you're already clean. You're, you're clean by the word I've spoken to you. That's not the issue. He's not calling them to be born again here. What's happening, paragraph one, it was common in Israel for the Jews to believe in the God of Moses. And Jesus said in John 5, he goes, you believe many in Israel believe that they didn't obey that good, but they believed. That's why they had this whole, all these political and social laws and religious laws, because they believed in the invisible God of Moses. 
They believed in him so much, they really overdid it, and they added things to the laws and to the culture. And so Jesus said, you believe in him. You've never seen him with your eyes. No man has ever seen him, but you do believe in the God of Israel, my father. Again, they didn't have the spirit of obedience, but they, it was common to believe in the invisible God. Jesus says, now you believe in the Father and you've never seen him. Starting tomorrow, it's changing. You're going to have to believe in me without seeing me. You're going to have to believe in my words like you believe in Moses' words, which come from God. Up until now, when you get troubled, you hug me or come next to me, and you go, oh, good, and you see the miracle. This is all changing starting tomorrow. And I'm laying out the truth right now. You've got to engage with me the way over history Israel's engaged with the Father, believing the invisible God. And they're kind of going like, what now? What are you talking about? He goes, it's going to change dynamically, but actually by the Spirit in you, it's still going to work. And they're going, okay. I don't think they understood anything that they were talking about. Paragraph two, the cure for the troubled heart. This sounds so simplistic. I know it's, but I know you believe it. The trouble, the cure for the troubled heart in one sentence is Jesus himself. When we go to heaven, we're not gonna be mostly captured by the grandeur of heaven, although we will, but the grandeur of the new Jerusalem is the person of Jesus. I mean, we love the beauty of the new Jerusalem, the gardens, the water, the food, the, the resurrected bodies, but him, he will be the very essence. Jesus says, it's me. Believe in me, trust my leadership. And they're going, oh, we're in. He goes, no, you haven't believed in me with me being absent yet. Without, I mean, he appeared to them a couple of times, but for the next 50, 60, 70 years, an appearance is gonna be really rare. And they're not prepared for this. I love what Paul said in Ephesians 3, verse eight. He goes, I've been anointed by grace to proclaim the unsearchable riches of the man Christ Jesus. Beloved, there are unsearchable riches in a man. And Paul, that's what he was captured by. Truth number two. This is very, uh, very significant. The very first promise, after he says, believe in me without seeing me, that's the new way. Truth number two, but it's the first promise, actually. He goes, in my Father's house are many mansions. I will come again receive you to myself, that where I am there you will be also. This is, this is so unusual. The very first promise he gives them to overcome a troubled heart is the fact they would believe in the, the promises of eternity. Now, I don't know of very many pastors when a person's dealing with shame, they're dealing with grief, they're dealing with betrayal, they're dealing with fear, they say, let's anchor your heart in eternal promises. They're like, oh, come on, let's be practical. Jesus is the best pastor, and the first promise, he says, you you must be anchored in truths related to the billion years you're gonna live with me, billions and billions and billions. My Father's house, you're gonna live in it, that's the New Jerusalem, and the New Jerusalem, the Bible says three times in Revelation, is coming down to the earth. You're gonna live with me in my Father's house. That's promise number one, and that promise is almost absent in the body of Christ today. Barely referenced here and there. And he says, uh, you're gonna be with me where I am. And so, I mean, again, I look at Jesus, I go, who helps people get free from trouble by talking about the age to come? I mean, really. If you did that, they would say, pie in the sky, give me something practical. 
Jesus could say, I've never said anything more practical that will change your life than you getting anchored in the eternal narrative of who you are to me and who I am to you and where you're gonna be for billions of years. You won't make sense of trouble if you don't know that's the storyline. That's the family storyline. Trouble number three, top of page four. Well, it's not just we're gonna live in the age to come with him. That's really big. He says that where I am, there you can be also. You can engage in an intimate interaction with me right now. Not just trust my leadership. You and me can have a friendship, a depth together. I call it the oil of intimacy. You know, in Matthew 25, Jesus said the wise virgins had oil. The foolish ones had no oil. They got too busy serving the Lord where they let the oil of intimacy diminish in their heart. And so this one is the primary kingdom foundation, the oil of intimacy, entering into this heart interaction with him in a sustained way. I don't mean every minute, every day, but it's a, it's a regular part of our life, and he describes some of that right here. And I'm not gonna, I'll go to that in other sessions in John 14, 15, 16. Paragraph G, tro, tro, uh, truth number four. He says, you're gonna be supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not just you'll have intimacy and your heart will thrive in the joy of relationship and interacting, and even a little bit of that goes a long way. I mean, I want my intimacy with God to be 10 times what it is now, but it's much more than it used to be. And I'll tell you one thing with some experience, a little bit of this goes a long way. I want more than a little bit, but a little bit goes a long way. It really changes on the inside. But here he's saying something different than your heart is gonna thrive in the interaction with me. He says, I'm gonna not leave you as an orphan. The Spirit's gonna teach you. The Spirit's gonna give you supernatural direction. The Spirit's gonna open and shut doors. The Spirit's gonna anoint your hands and your words and use you to touch other people. The Spirit's gonna do many of these things that are gonna engage your life in my kingdom purposes, gonna direct, protect, anoint, visit, teach, remind. He goes, you don't get that yet, but this is gold, what I'm telling you. Truth number five. Oh, I mean, all of these are my favorites. This is my, my favorite. They're all my favorites. I mean, this is awesome. Jesus makes this point a number of times. It's a point that's easily overlooked, but we can't overlook it. And in this 50 or 100 sessions, I, I will camp out on this one a number of times. It's one of my favorite truths of the body of Christ. I mean, in the word of, in reality, not just, I mean, the word of God, but in all reality, it's the way that God loves God. And there's more in the Bible about how God loves God than meets the eye if you're not looking for it. Jesus says, in the way the Father loves me, I love you. And we could get, oh, you love us that way? Oh, that's fantastic. And Jesus says, but wait, the way the Father loves me, have you ever thought about that? Have you thought about the indescribable pleasure we have together from eternity past? Beloved, that's the grand foundation of the created order. If Father, Son, and Spirit don't love each other, the family falls apart. The reason we are secure for billions of years because Father loves Son and Son loves Father. I mean, this is not only uh, the source of our security, this is the foundation of, of, of all the ultimate reality of, of everything that's good is that Father, Son, and Spirit love each other and they have indescribable pleasure in their relationship and they say, in that way, that's how we feel about you too. 
And I've asked the Holy Spirit over the years, I want to know how God loves God. And the Spirit would say something. I didn't hear it, but he would say something like, ask me more and I'll show you. I'll show you in the Word. Ask me. The reason many people never grow in that, they never asked me to teach them that. And he makes this point a number of times in John 13 to 17, the way the Father and Son love each other. And beloved, that is a source of indescribable spiritual pleasure. Just to touch that a little bit, our human spirit comes alive. You know, it's, it's the children, how they feel when they know mom and dad love each other with indescribable love. The children, they feel different when they're 5 and 10 and 15. They come and go into the family with a different attitude. When they see it, they go, wow. There's just an unspoken security and anchor when that truth is in place. So that's not a just a cryptic kind of, well, that's not really important. Jesus outlines it a number of times, particularly in the Gospel of John, but in John 13 to 17, he does. Truth number six is not just uh, the Spirit's in us to use us, anoint us, direct us, reveal things to us. The Spirit's on us. I mean, the, uh, we have access to the throne of God to get our, su- our needs met in supernatural ways. We can ask God, and He provides money. He opens doors. He does all kinds of things through our prayer. We have access to the Father to cause our circumstances to shift. That's different than just the Lord anointing me and visiting me and directing me. And Paul says that, that God will supply all of our needs. He says, whatever you ask that's in the will of God, it will happen. Like, I can be here and the throne of God's way over there and I can ask and needs are met. Like, that's really pretty cool if that's real. If that's really real, this is a major point. Now, we've heard about this over the years, but this is gonna be an issue of life and death to us. These, he, he says this a number of times in John 13 to 17. Okay, truth number seven. Out of matrix, this is, oh, this is my favorite one. Maybe it's, this is too telling. This is my favorite one. This is my seventh favorite one. <laughs> How Jesus responded to the apostles when they stumbled. On the very night, he tells Peter, you're gonna deny me. Look right, right here. You can, you, you, you can read uh, in Luke 22. He says, Peter, I want you to know, you're gonna deny me. No, I'm not. Be sure. A couple hours later, you're going to deny me. No, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> God, Peter, you are. But I want you to know, I'm not writing you off. A lot of people write off somebody if they get denied by that person. He goes, look at Luke 22. I'm going to pray for you. I have been praying for you. And I got words of strength to you. You will return. I mean, a lot of times when people fail, the people around them say, you old hopeless hypocrite. I told you you were a hypocrite from the beginning. You never were sincere. He says, Peter, I got something good news. You will return. Well, Peter doesn't, he didn't want to even hear that until after he stumbles. And he goes, oh, no, no, what was that? Did he say I would return? And the other guy goes, yeah, yeah, we heard him too. He says, not just that. You're going to be anointed in the spirit and in the kingdom to help others. You're not over, Peter, because you stumbled. Like, wow. Look what he says in John 15. He goes, he tells all of them, you're all going to stumble tonight. But I want you to know, John 15, 8, you're all going to bear fruit. Or are we going to stumble? We're going to bear fruit. You're going to stumble, but I'm going to so recover you. I'm going to so establish you. You're going to bear fruit. Your stumbling is not the end of your story. It's not even the main part of your story. The main part of your story is my commitment to you, and you're going to bear fruit out of it. You wait and see. 
Not only that, verse 9, I love you. I mean, most people don't look at someone going to betray them that night and say, I love you like God loves me. Like, wow. These words healed them later on. They went, did he say he loves us like the Father loves him? Really? Beloved, you don't want to read that verse and say, wow. You want to read that verse and say, thank you, Jesus. When's the last time you thanked Jesus for loving you the way the Father loves him? And when's the last time you asked the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you more and more? And my point is, well, not very often. That's not my point. My point is, note to self, I'm going to put this in my conference. I'm going to jump into this. Are you kidding me? Then he says in verse 15, you're my friends. But you said we're going to deny you, and we're going to stumble tonight. Yeah. But my love for you and our relationship's bigger than your failure right now. And then, oh, I love it, John 21. You know, this is... a. Some, uh, uh, some days later, he, he appears to them, and Peter, John 21, he's out fishing. He's up in Galilee, up north of Galilee, and Jesus is on the shore, and they're out fishing. And Peter is, the reason Peter's fishing all night is not because he liked fishing. This was not recreational. You don't fish all night in toil for recreational fishing. He's fishing all night because after he failed Jesus, down in Jerusalem, he walked up to Galilee, said, I'm getting my boat back. I'm going back into my occupation. I am an abysmal failure. I am totally disqualified. There's no way he can use me again. I'm going back to my occupation. This was an occupational shift, not recreational fishing. And Jesus walks on the shore and he goes, hey. He goes, cast the dead on the other side. They go, what? Just leave us alone. They don't know it's Jesus. Cast your net on the other side. They did it, and they bring in this hall of fish, and Peter's going, that's what happened three years ago, the first time I met Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Jesus is saying, I'm going to talk to you with the language of your heart like I did three years ago. I'm going to win you and show you how committed I am to you. Peter gets there, and Jesus says, shepherd my sheep. Three times Peter denied him, and three times Jesus said, do you love me? And he goes, yes, Lord. I'm so sad. Three times. For every denial, he says, I recommission you to leadership. I recommission you to shepherd my sheep. Beloved, the way Jesus tenderly interacts with people who stumble that are genuine in the repentance is a beautiful, remarkable part of the story. And the truth number eight, finally, worship team, come on up, if you will. And we're just going to worship for a few minutes and just, just interact with the Lord. It's just the joy of eternal rewards. It's not just we're going to live in the city. Our cup of cold water, Jesus said, I promise you. You give, you give a cup of cold water, I promise you. He says in Matthew 10, 42, you will not lose your reward ever. It may be 30 years before you meet me in death. I remember you gave that cup of cold water. You can't even remember. I can't remember what I did 30 years ago in an act of kindness to somebody in obedience. Like I can't remember it. It's all in his book. And uh, he says, for the very little things you've done, you're going to have a great reward. You were faithful in few, I'm going to give you much. And I've ran in, I've taught in eternal rewards. Jesus taught on eternal rewards, by the way, more than any man in the Bible. Far more than any man in the Bible. Because he knows more about eternal rewards than any man in the Bible. I've done several series over the years on eternal rewards. It is remarkable how much in the Bible is on this subject. I love this subject. Now, I always run into a few people, and, and I don't want to be mean about it, but they're just a little bit more 
committed to righteousness than Jesus is. And they say, I don't need eternal rewards. I know Jesus is kind of like, he broke down and gave you false motivation. I know he didn't mean to. I go, maybe you don't know what eternal rewards are. Maybe you do want them. No, not me. I don't do it. I don't want it. And I said, no, I don't think you're, you're misunderstanding because their view of eternal rewards is they're going to be rewarded, so they're going to strut around with more power than you. I go, no, that's not what it's about at all. I go, oh. I go, eternal rewards is Jesus showing how he feels about the way you loved him in this life. He's the wealthiest, most generous, generous man alive. He's got all the wealth, all the generosity. He's going to show you how he feels about the way you loved him. And he's going to do with generosity. He's going to give garments and thrones and crowns. You're going to wear garments that display the way you loved him in this age. Because Jesus is excited by it. I go, trust me. If he thinks you're going to have joy in them, trust me, you're going to want them. No, I don't need them to little cabin on the edge of glory that's good enough for me. Don't want to bother anybody. No, no, no. I think you're going to want them. So I know that don't trust me. Jesus did not falsely motivate us because he kind of caved in a little bit and promised us some goodies if we would hang in there. No. He goes, you have no idea the joy you will have when I show you how I feel about the ways you loved me in small ways throughout your life. Well, amen and amen. We need to believe these truths, these invisible truths. Let's stand before the Lord. Jesus said, believe also in me like you did the God of Israel. You won't see me after this minus an appearance here or there, but I mean for, for years. You must interact with me according to these promises. You must, and you can overcome trouble. Well, Father, here we are before you. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. Jesus, we love you. Jesus. 
emotional entrapment. It's the one called shame. And the reason shame is so easy to get into because the devil is an accuser. It says in Revelation 12, he accuses night and day, day and night, night and day, day and night. And he gets his accusation against you into your own mouth. And he gets his accusation against you into the mouth of others. And accusation bombards us. Even the very things we say, oh, I don't know, I'm just sitting there working. Don't say that stuff. You're not going to give voice to Satan's accusation. That's where condemnation and shame comes. And others will say it and just bless them and move on. Don't take their word into your heart when they're writing you off. Everyone will be written off by people. But I want to pray for folks that come up to this front line here. And you're saying, well, it's condemnation, it's accusations. The enemy's hitting me on this. I know it's not true, but I just can't shake it sometimes. I want us to pray for you, but you have to interact with the Lord on this. I mean, I do, you do, we all do. This is something we all struggle with here and there. But I want to pray over you, anyone in the room. You're saying, whether it's condemnation, accusation, you know, just feeling unsure about how God feels about you. You know He loves you, but we're humans. So like, oh, and feel that way today. I want to pray that the Lord will wash your mind with the water of the Lord. I have to pray this for myself over and over and over. This is not a one-time deal. I mean, we never just get over it forever. We, it hits us, it hits us. We say, no, no, no. I'm going to say what God says about me.
says, I am committed to you far more than you're committed to me. That is your glory and strength. I take authority over these lies and these arrows striking their heart and their mind. You are safe in the Father's arms. You are safe in the Father's arms. You are my delight. You are my delight. I delight in you more than you know. My hand is upon you. I will finish my good work in you. says you have returned you will strengthen the people around you i have called you i have anointed you you are my friends i see your desire i see the cry of your heart rise up and say yes to my word over you oh more than you could think or imagine As I have thoughts of kindness and goodness towards you. I have not disqualified. You are not disqualified. I have not written you off. We are not finished.
Say, Lord, we 